Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be in verses 17 through 31. If you want to know where 1 Corinthians is in the Bible, it's kind of this back portion back here. Um, I'll give you a minute to get there. Hear the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that your word would help us to know you more that your word would reveal to us the knowledge of God, that you would use it to transform, to encourage, and to break apart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never seen the movie Borat, that's probably good. It's kind of a mean-spirited movie. <laughs> And, and I mean, the whole thing is the filmmakers are holding things up for ridicule. And the, the conceit of it is that, uh, you know, Borat, it's actually the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen. He poses as a journalist from Kazakhstan going around the United States. And, and basically he goes and does inflammatory and crazy things. And then they film people's reactions. And everybody in the audience says, ha, ha, ha. Isn't that funny? Aren't they dumb? And at one point, they go, uh, they go to, um, Borat goes to a Pentecostal meeting. And, um, you know, this is the exposure we get, you know, part of America is Christianity. And, and um, you know, in every other scene, Borat's running around doing crazy things. During this scene, he just stands there looking around and their point is, well, look at how nuts this is. And, um, you know, I mean, I, we're all aware our Pentecostal brethren can be enthusiastic to the point of being over the top. But, 
you know, to, to many audiences. This just looked ridiculous. There's this guy screaming on the stage. There's this, you know, at one point, Borat is like holding hands with this guy who's just like speaking tongues with all his heart and Borat's just looking at him. And, and Borat even goes up and like gives his testimony talking about, oh, my life is in shambles. Can Jesus help me? And the preacher's like, yes, Jesus can help you. It's like, can Jesus take away the pain in my heart? It's like, yes, Jesus can take away the pain in my heart. And everybody's cheering and all this stuff and they lay hands on Borat and they tell him to speak in tongues and so you know Sasha Baron Cohen just starts pretending to speak in tongues and he falls down and goes limp and and um, you know I mean the, the whole purpose of that movie is to to hold things up for ridicule because they're foolish and and what that says for the audiences who delight in that sort of thing is it's a large part of our culture that considers the Christian faith foolish, ridiculous. And everybody who's walking with Jesus, you know that. Like we all we all know that and, and we feel we feel the pressure of it. We're considered foolish for a number of reasons. The Christian faith is considered, you know, old fashioned. It's out not very up to date when it comes to ideas about you know, um, uh, morality and gender and sexuality and the rest of it. Not up to date. That's old fashioned or, or because it's exclusive. You know, it says that Jesus is the only way. And, you know, we as a culture, we, we kind of our belief is we know God is too big for one religion. How we know that is unknown, but it's something we know. Like, it can't, no, it's it's foolish because it's exclusive. And, you know, it's kind of, we're, we kind of embrace all religions as, as equally valid ways of knowing God. It's considered foolish a lot of the time um, by many people because it's, it's seen as being anti-science. You know, um, I mean, there's a number of things we could talk about here, but I mean, central to the Christian faith is the resurrection. And that that's just considered foolish. The fact, the idea that biological death, you know, cell death can be reversed. It's just, it's a non-starter. It's, it's, it's patently foolish. It could be considered foolish because it's too moral. You know, it's too, too, too many rules about morality. Also considered foolish for being immoral. Like, hey, it countenances slavery and murder and stuff like that. And thought foolish for being illogical. I mean, one of our central doctrines is that one plus one plus one equals one. It doesn't seem very... Yeah, that's a weird one. I agree. The Trinity, it's its hard to understand. Or, you know, this, this supposed logical contradiction of how can you believe in a all-powerful and good God um, and a world filled with suffering. Now, the purpose of the sermon is not to is not to answer all of those questions. If if any of those really struck a chord with you though, please email me. I'm happy to sit down with you. We could talk about these things at length and or I will personally buy you a copy of The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's a great book that talks about a lot of that stuff. But more what I'm talking about is just the there's an attitude through much of our culture that the Christian faith is foolish. And those of us who are Christians, we, we feel pressured, intimidated by this attitude. You know, we, to a certain extent, 
there, there's certain people we don't care if they think we're foolish. You know, if Villa, Vanilla Ice is like, oh, Christianity is foolish. We're like, shut up, you're Vanilla Ice. No one cares. But if it's somebody you respect, you know, if Oprah thinks it's foolish, we're like, ooh, Oprah thinks I'm foolish. You know, we, we lose respect in the eyes of someone we consider wise. Not only that, it, it has real world implications for many people uh, in their career path. In certain areas of, of learning, in certain disciplines, if you are a Christian, like a committed Christian, it's considered to be not okay. You're suspect. Your intellect is suspect. Your ethics are suspect. It's considered foolish. You can lose standing in certain groups of friends. You can end up being rejected by people. And we get some unhelpful help, you know. I mean, some, some well-meaning brothers and sisters say, well, let's just, it's okay. We just, just be foolish. Everything, let's just embrace it, you know. Like, turn your brain off. Don't worry about those things and just feel. Don't worry about it being wise or foolish. Just go with it. And, and then others who have try, been trying this for a couple of hundred years to say, well, can we just get rid of the foolish parts? Can we keep Christianity and, and get rid of the things that are considered foolish? You know, like, like the virgin birth. Can we get rid of that? And, you know, the resurrection or kind of any miracle or, or creation or, or the second coming. Anything that's considered foolish. Let's just get rid of that part of the Christian faith. And the problem, of course, is that you don't, you don't have very much left by the time you're done getting rid of everything that's considered foolish by our culture. What do we do? You know, this is nothing new. In, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church in a city where, where the culture, the Greco-Roman culture, considered the Christian faith to be foolish. He even makes reference to it here in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly, that is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, in what way was it considered foolish? Well, the, the two groups he points out are, are Jews. Paul was, was a Jew. And, and for, for Jews, the Christian faith was ridiculous. It was foolish because it, it preached a crucified Messiah. See, the Jews, Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They were trying to identify him, and they knew some things about him. Like, he was going to really kick a lot of Roman butt, and he was going to reestablish the nation, and he was going to, they were going to have, like, this great nationalistic revival of the Jewish nation. And so the idea that the Messiah would not lead an army, but instead be executed by the people he's supposed to defeat... Well, it's, I mean, it's nonsense to say that Jesus is the Messiah to them. It's like saying, hey, who's Banksy? And someone's like, oh, I know, Mitch McConnell. You know, it's like, no, it's, that's, that's absurd. There's no way. So that's why it was considered foolishness by the Jews. And then in Greco-Roman, uh, to the Greco-Roman mind, there was a number of things about the Christian faith that made it sound very foolish to them. First of all, it didn't come from the Greeks or the Romans. You see, for, for the Greeks especially, Corinth was a Roman city built on a Greek history. So it identified partly as, it, it was both, they, they looked at Rome as the inheritors of the Greek, of, of Greek culture. 
And for them, they were the smartest folks in the world. And so if, if, if a smart idea was come up with, it had to be from them. This came from the Jews. Well, they're like an oppressed people. They're, they're not super smart like us Greeks. So that, that was one thing. And then, you know, a number of things like the idea of God, any God, becoming a human in a real way and suffering. That was simply a non-starter. That was impossible. That couldn't be. And so for, for both Jews and Greeks, this was considered foolish. And Paul, writing to this situation, this tension that all the people at this church, they lived in this Greco-Roman city. Perhaps there was a, some Jewish presence, but to either side, this, this what they believed was considered foolish. It was cause for derision and mockery and rejection and, and exclusion from, from, you know, sort of elite circles in society and, and all the rest of it. Paul says to choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. That, Paul, Paul's like, just <laughs> choose, the, choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. Look with me at verses 23 through 25. It says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, those Greeks, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, he's, he's implying here to, to choose this foolishness. You know, I could do a lot of scare quotes in this sermon, but I'm not going to. Choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. And what reasons do we have? We're going to see that it's because God's wisdom is action. God's wisdom is empowered and God's wisdom is of the kingdom. His wisdom is action, empowered, and of the kingdom. So first of all, God's wisdom is action. In, in verse 17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. What does Paul mean by this phrase, eloquent wisdom? This is a really important phrase, and we're going to see this word wisdom something like 22 times in the, in the, the letter uh, to the Corinthians. This was a big deal in the culture. What Paul is not talking about is insight. That's not what is meant by eloquent wisdom here. He's not talking about solid human learning. That's not what he is aiming at. He's aiming at the rhetorical tradition and the rhetorical class. Let, let me tell you what I mean. In the ancient Roman world, speaking like, like a certain type, a style of speaking, of great eloquence, eloquent wisdom as it was called, or, or, or sophistry if you've ever heard of that, it was like a spectator sport. It was like their NFL. It, it was their heavyweight boxing, you know? Uh, the, the people would come out in droves to hear a truly eloquent speaker. And there was a class, the, the rhetorical class of people who would get up to speak. This is how they made their living. And, and, and it was less about what they said than how they said it. The Greeks and the, and the Romans just loved style. Style over substance, really. There, there's one story I remember hearing of uh, there was a there was this lawyer and a lot of these guys started as lawyers. Uh, it, it, he was his name was Hortentius, 
And people would come out to hear his cases, not because they were interested in the case, but because they wanted to hear Hortentius speak. And when this new guy on the block, Cicero, he was emerging as like a great orator. When they they tried a case against each other, you know, like uh, Hortentius for the for the prosecution and Cicero for the defense, I believe it was that. Like it was it was the event, it was the fight of the century in, in terms of rhetoric. People were really passionate about this. And the funny thing is, is you know, it really wasn't about the merits of the case. You would hire one of these rhetoricians to represent you, not because they're like, and look at the evidence, da 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 da. It's because they could move people with their words so well. You know, I remember uh, one ancient source talks about, you know, you would, you would go to these trials and, and, uh, and, and it had nothing to do with the merits of the case. If you could get a, a the, if your speaker, if your attorney could get people excited about, you know, Roman nationalism and then make them cry with some moving story and then get them laughing, you would win your case. Nothing to do with how good they, how well they argued. It's, it was all style. And, and, and that was really what Paul is talking about here with words of eloquent wisdom. It's these guys who are so gifted with their speaking that anything they say, it sounds good. It's appealing. It's attractive. It sounds reasonable. It's persuasive. Right? That, that, is, that is what he means, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Paul's saying, I don't play that game. What does he say and said? Instead, he says the gospel. Here's the difference. This, this eloquent wisdom Paul is criticizing, this, this wisdom of man, it's shallow. You scratch the surface on any of this stuff and there's not much behind it. It's all style. It's all sizzle, no steak. God's wisdom is the gospel. It's action. In verse 17, he says, I didn't, he says, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What is his message? What's his, what's the wisdom of God? It's the cross. And of course, the resurrection. In verse 30, it says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see the difference? The gospel, the Christian faith, is not a new entry into the rhetorical game. It's not some smart new idea that's going to give people an opportunity to wax eloquent and philosophical. It's an event. It's a deed. It's an action. It's something God did. That's God's wisdom. It's kind of like um, the fighter Joe Lewis. There was this one fight. It was one of the great fighters of all time. And, um, and some, some, some fighter that he was going to fight was talking a lot in the press. And they asked Joe Lewis about it. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't speak in the press. I speak in the ring with these. And then, you know, he goes to the fight. And he clobbers the guy. <laughs> we have that same dynamic. We have a rhetorical class that is giving us man's wisdom in our culture. One can think of all of that. I mean, this is not just with the internet. This goes way before that. There's been self-help books on the shelf and people propping themselves up as the guru that you need to listen to to succeed in life and marriage and the rest of it, to, to get the most out of life. There's the more serious public intellectual 
which you notice they all kind of have a certain look. You notice the people who speak on TV tend to, uh, tend to pay a lot of attention to appearance. Why? Because it's the same dynamic. It's a visual language that, that makes whatever they're saying more attractive, more persuasive, more beautiful, more appealing. Dare I say it? Cool. That's a huge part of what our rhetorical class does these days, is, is try and make something appealing. That's what our wisdom is. But you scratch the surface on this stuff, and it's pretty darn empty. Instead, God's wisdom is the cross of Christ. It's deeds, not words. It's substance, not style. We need to choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man because God's wisdom is action, but also God's wisdom is empowered. God's wisdom is empowered. Paul tells us in verse 21 that man's wisdom is powerless. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So he's saying there, um, and remember, he, he's taking a mainly at this empty sort of wisdom. He, he's saying that through this wisdom, and these guys definitely, like they weren't, um, the, the, this, the rhetorical class, a lot of the time they were speaking theology. They would talk about God and existence and that sort of thing. He's saying you can't know God through that. It's limited. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's, it's great, it's appealing, but it's limited. You don't know God through that. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, if you were to look around my house, you know, uh, the, after, our, after, our, after our fire, you know, uh, we, we had the whole house rebuilt. And you could, as a wise philosopher type, say this had to be built by a human contractor. This contractor was careful. This contractor was skilled. And you'd be right about all those things. But you really don't know the contractor. You don't know uh, man or woman, young or old, uh, you know, tall or short, whatever. You don't know their personality. You don't have knowledge of that contractor just by looking around at the house. You, you know a few generalities, that's it. But then if our contractor, Jerry, walked through the door, all of a sudden you meet him, right? That, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. All the wisdom in the world, all, all they do is describe these vague generalities. You can't really know God through wisdom. Instead, God's wisdom is empowered with the knowledge of God. In verse 21, he says, it, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So, so first of all, the, the wisdom of God is empowered with the knowledge of God. Through, through human wisdom, you can't know God, but through the gospel, through the deeds of God, through God walking through the door of the world in Jesus, going to the cross and rising again, well, now we have true, specific relational knowledge of God. You see, that the, the, the foolishness of God reveals the knowledge of God. It's empowered. It has the power of allowing us to know God. That's considerable power. Any, any wisdom that doesn't answer this central question 
of God and our relationship to him is limited, powerless. But it's also empowered with salvation. In verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, again, at the end of verse 21, he says, We preach to save the, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is the message about Jesus Christ is, is it carries with it a power to salvation. It's a message that when it's embraced, we are saved. The, the, in fact, this, this, those who are being saved in verse 18, that's what's called a present tense verb. And it's not just talking about this end result of salvation. It's talking about the transforming power of the gospel. That when it's embraced from the heart, it, it remakes a person. It, it soothes the troubled conscience. It, re it, 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 it releases us of guilt. It takes away shame. It makes a shattered person whole again. I've seen this. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it many, many times. That is Paul here saying that all human learning is worthless? No, remember, he, he's taking a mainly at the wisdom tradition in Corinth. But it can be said that all human learning, the best of it, is powerless. It's informational, so useful, but it's the difference between someone writing a food blog, you know, a nutrition blog. Here's an outstanding diet if you want this, this, and that, heart health and the rest of it. Okay, you could read that blog all you want. It does not contain the power of health. Eating the food that it's recommending does. It's the difference between a food blog and food. The, this, the, the message of man's wisdom is powerless, informational at best, but of God's wisdom, it's empowered with the knowledge of God and salvation. We need to choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man because God's wisdom is action, it's also empowered. But we always have to ask, where is this wisdom for? Because this is, this is a key question. There was once a guy named Franz Boaz. He was, a, you know, by anybody's measure, he was a genius. He was a smart guy. He, um, he had multiple, multiple PhDs and, um, and taught in the university. He, he, he made his uh, life's work the study uh, cultural anthropology. He would study different human cultures. And the way he got to this discipline was interesting. He wanted to study the migration patterns of Inuit tribes on Baffin Island up in Canada. And so he, he went there and, you know, got outfitted with, a, with sled dogs and the rest of it. And he was lost for 26 hours. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, this is before GPS and all that. He's like terrified for his life. He could not handle the environment or the dogs or anything. He, he got lucky and he got taken to, to an Inuit camp. And he would see uh, like the, the wisdom of, of this tribal people. And, and you have to understand, Franz Boaz, coming from the West, being highly educated, he, like people of his time, looked at his own culture as higher and theirs as low and primitive. But he, he started looking at like, oh, they don't have any problem finding their way around. They don't have any problem finding food. They build houses out of ice right there. 
You know, they're 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 warm. Their clothes work. They know how to handle the sled dogs. They know how to tether things to the sled and carry things. He's like, all my PhDs are useless here. They didn't help me. And I was lost for 26 hours. And he started to realize that what you can, what's considered wise depends on where it's for. All the wisdom that he had that was considered wisdom in the West in a university setting was worthless on Baffin Island and vice versa. And he was actually one of the first people who said, let's stop saying high culture, low culture. Let's realize that, that wisdom, you have to ask where it's for. God's wisdom is for the kingdom. One of the reasons it looks foolish to the world is because it's not for the world. It's for the kingdom. We have to remember man's wisdom is for the cultural moment. And I use that phrase moment on purpose. Think of this. This, this rhetorical class in first century Corinth height of the empire, you know, these guys couldn't have been considered more brilliant. They, they were the creme de la creme of wisdom. And if we were to listen to what they were saying, we would say, this is blithering nonsense. Funny enough, that is always the dynamic at play. What's considered wise at one cultural moment in another time in another place is considered nonsense and foolishness. This is true today as well. What was considered unassailably true in 1926 today is, is considered ridiculous. Heck, what was considered certain in 2011 now will get you canceled in 2021. Ask J.K. Rowling. Question for you. Those of us who are like, oh, Let's get the Christian faith up to date for Denver 2021, our cultural moment. Do you think that the cultural moment is done passing? You know, one of the big problems with saying, hey, let's just get rid of all the foolishness for that everything people consider foolish in our time and place is that the time is always changing. And what you know, you get everything all prettied up for 2021 in Denver and then 2025 rolls along and what you, you know, everything you did is considered foolish. It's a constantly, like everything that we think about truth, about justice, about, um, you know, humanity and gender and the rest of it. You think we're done with that? You think we're done changing? No, far from it. It's very much in flux. Man's wisdom is always for the cultural moment. But God's wisdom is for the kingdom and the kingdom is eternal. The kingdom is eternal. Think on this. This here book that Christians are still saying, yes, we believe this. The first parts of it are like 5,000 years old. That's far from being for a cultural moment. This is God's wisdom that speaks into every culture into every cultural moment, but belongs to no cultural moment. God's kingdom is eternal, but also God's kingdom is right side up. I want, to pay, want you to take, take a look at verses 26 and following. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is it? It's people. He's saying, you guys are from low stations. You are not the powerful, you are not the rich, and you are not the noble born, yet God is using you to, to, to turn those things right side up. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, and that, that's a term straight out of the rhetorical tradition. It, you know, things that are not, it's saying it's the biggest insult to someone's speech. You said a thing that is not. He's saying, use the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. He's saying, using stuff that the rhetorical tradition considers nonsense to, to you know, undo what they think is amazing. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's kingdom is right side up. Here's a facet of human wisdom that I want to call attention to. What's considered wise at any cultural moment has always been set by the elites of that culture. It was true in first century Corinth. You know, you, it was not farmers getting up and doing the speaking at these things. It was the sons of the rich. It was people who didn't have to farm. <laughs> in, in fact, if you were not of noble birth, you couldn't be considered someone worth listening to. What did you know? You're not noble. In Christ's kingdom, this is flip-flopped. It just doesn't matter if you're noble or not. It doesn't matter if you're from the powerful. I mean, the, the apostles, what were they? They were fishermen, right? It's not how God's kingdom operates. It, it, the wisdom doesn't come from the elites. It comes from God. And you know, this is, this is still true. Still, in every culture, what's considered wise, including our own, it is set by the elites and dispensed by the elites. If you take the influencers of our society, I use that broadly for scholars, intellectuals, people on TV talking, people who are running blogs and da-da-da, overwhelmingly they are cultural elites. And if they aren't, they had to become a cultural elite. They had to go and get a high-end high education. They had to join the ranks of the elite before they can be a dispenser of our culture's wisdom. You ever notice that? Like, we're not going out to, hey, we're going to go ask John Kraplowowicz, who drives a tow truck. John, what are your thoughts on this? We'll ask Paris Hilton, though. <laughs> what do you think about the election, Paris Hilton? This is weird, right? Oh, Paris is dropping that knowledge on us. But God's kingdom is right side up. The, the wisdom does not come from the elites. It comes from God and belongs to everybody. So we need to choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man because God's wisdom is action. It's empowered and it's for the kingdom. Sometimes it's simply wiser to be a fool. <laughs> there was once a guy named Heinrich Schleiman. I'm not sure I'm saying Schleiman right. But Heinrich Schleiman, he, he, he lived in the 1800s and he was, um, he loved ancient history from the time he was a little kid. He especially loved uh, Homer's Iliad, There's this poem that tells the story of the Trojan Wars. And he wanted to go to university, but couldn't. His dad was a pastor, and so he had to get a job. <laughs> and uh, 
and and so he he became a merchant and a highly successful merchant he became wealthy enough to where he said well i want to pursue my passion of of ancient history now and so he went to the wise he went to the university professors you know the professors of ancient history he says hey i i want to find the city of troy where the iliad happened where the trojan wars happened and the professors like he was mocked openly they said you fool you dweeb there were no Trojan Wars, and there was no place called Troy except in Homer's imagination. You're taking a poem and reading it like it's history, for goodness sake. How foolish can you be? He says, okay, maybe it is foolish, but I'm still going to try. So where would I look if, if this fictitious place actually existed? They say, well, it would have to be in northwestern Turkey. So he went to northwestern Turkey and started digging around. Do you know what he found? He found Troy. Not only did he find Troy, he found all nine layers of Troy. It turns out the city was rebuilt after being destroyed not one time, but nine times. He found pottery. He found jewelry. He found structures. He found walls. He found the whole shebang. Like the, the city of Troy, uh, the ancient city of Troy, is one of the best understood uh, and best developed archaeological sites of the whole world. It's a good thing he chose foolishness over wisdom, at least worldly wisdom. If you walk with Jesus, you will be considered by some to be foolish. It's just what's going to happen. You may face mockery, rejection, suspicion, career setbacks. You may be considered uncool. But we need to choose the foolishness of God over the wisdom of man. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would give us the courage that we would be content to be thought fools so that we can know true wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.